Marketing success comes from identifying the right opportunities. And sponsoring the Up Next in Commerce podcast might just be the best opportunity you'll hear about today. With tens of thousands of listeners, expert creative, production, and strategic promotion teams at the helm, not to mention millions of impressions at the ready, this is a growth opportunity you should not ignore. Email me at stephanie at mission.org to see how your business can benefit from partnering with the Up Next in Commerce team. The traditional influencer model of, hey, let me find a micro-influencer, let me pay him X amount of money, depending on your size, and let me have him do a post talking about our product or driving people to our site. The experience that we've had with ourselves and then with brands we've worked with is you're really not going to get an ROI there. One of the most vexing questions brands are asking themselves today is how to get a solid ROI from influencer marketing. At Fancy.com, Greg Spillane thinks he has the answer. When Greg came on as the CEO of Fancy in 2019, he was tasked with reinventing and rebuilding the brand. Known as the turnaround guy, he had experience coming into distressed companies and pivoting them into viable businesses. Fancy was right up his alley. The company was known for lavish parties and even handing out $1,000 gift cards to celebrities, models, and influencers. After Fancy blew through $100 million in investment money and with no profit in sight, Greg knew there was work to be done. With a new focus on profitability and building on the impressive technology that Fancy already created, Greg figured out a model that created a win-win opportunity for brands and influencers. On this episode of Up Next in Commerce, Greg discusses how he approached his role when he was brought in to turn around the struggling brand. He details the influencer channel and email strategies he's implementing to turn engagement into transactions. Plus, he talks about how to build a sustainable company, the things to consider when building out a board or taking on investment money, and he discusses his thoughts on when building an app is beneficial or just a distraction. Enjoy this episode. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. Respond quickly to changing customer needs with flexible e-commerce connected to marketing, sales, and service. Deliver intelligent commerce experiences your customers can trust across every channel. Together, we're ready for what's next in commerce. Learn more at salesforce.com slash commerce. Welcome back to another episode of Up Next in Commerce. This is your host, Stephanie Postles, co-founder of Mission.org. Today, we're chatting with Greg Spillane, CEO of Fancy.com. Greg, welcome. Thank you, Stephanie. I'm so excited to be here and speaking with you. I know. I'm really excited to have you on. I was going through Fancy.com before this, and I think I found at least three things that I want to order after the show that I actually have not seen anywhere else. One was an air plant that was on top of an amethyst crystal, which I haven't seen that. Yeah. And the other one was like a chilling beer mug, uh, which looks awesome. <laughs> so that's where my mind's at right now. Air plants and beer mugs. <laughs> well, perfect. I'll, uh, I'll tell you what, I'll hook you up with, uh, with a solid uh, discount code and uh, even something you can, you can send out to your audience. Oh, I like it. This interview is already going great. So you have such an interesting story. Fancy is a really good story. I was hoping actually we can just start and dive right in about what is your role and how did you come to Fancy and what is Fancy.com? Sure. Yeah. I came out of school really as an athlete. I attended undergrad on a, on a football scholarship. So I was a little bit of a, a meathead type of guy earlier in you know, my life. And uh, 
you know, was introduced to the internet and, and really computers real early on. I was one of those guys that had a, you know, a computer when I was 10 years old, connecting with my, you know, 2400 baud modem, nice. doing all those types of things. So, you know, that's, you know, schools, technology is what I studied. I got out, I, uh, I started my career as an engineer, quickly realized, you know, coding all day was just not for me. Uh, and that's kind of where my entrepreneurial journey started. I actually founded a an agency. We were doing custom development for people, a lot of digital transformation stuff real early and sort of the internet booms like early 2000s and built a couple of different products, um, you know, sort of just by happenstance and, and, and took them to market in a subscription-based model um, well before SaaS was really even a term and, uh, um, you know, had some success and, uh, you know, had an opportunity to, to sell that company. And so that was great. I decided to go back to business school at that point. Uh, and then, you know, really spent the, the better part of the next eight years or so in, in kind of the management consulting world, specific around technology, mm-hmm. um, you know, doing sort of like big Fortune 100 type of systems implementations, et cetera. And great, cushy, all that stuff, like good pay. But uh, I just, you know, I, I didn't want to be like sort of a cog in a giant wheel. So uh, a business school colleague of mine um, had just taken over this this company uh, based out of San Diego. It was founded by uh, a guy who had you know already had a, a billion dollar exit. And it's kind of more of a, like an incubator of sorts. It was like four or five companies that had came together, and and he was asked to run it. And he was looking for a guy who had sort of a tech you know marketing business development background, and brought me in. And I, I left sort of the the cushy corporate world to get back into the crazy world of entrepreneurship. Uh, led that company through a pivot, eventually rebranding as events.com. We spun off one of our divisions and sold it to private equity. And uh, it, it was a nice little ride. And, and that gentleman ended up moving back into the uh, private equity world and, and opened up a fund and a venture fund and um, would invest in a number of different companies. And, and somehow I became like this turnaround guy that he would bring me in to these, these companies that had all this potential that they invested in, but, you know, for one reason or another was somewhat distressed. And, uh, uh, that's, that's ultimately how I got introduced to fancy. Um, he, he came in, they, they sit on the board of directors here. Um, they, they invested in the company in, you know, late 2018 and there were some things that needed to be changed. Obviously fancy has been a company been around for, for a really long time. So I was brought in, made the CEO in March of 2018. 19, uh, but a little bit more about Fancy. You know, the company itself was, uh, you know, founded in 2010. Tremendous amount of early success. You know, I think, you know, we're talking about this, you know, people like Jack Dorsey, you know, was on the board of directors early on. Um, even today, our board of directors is sort of a who's who of, of people. But, uh, you know, the company has had over 12 million um, users since our inception. Uh, really founded as more of like a social network, a Pinterest of sorts, a place to really kind of find and share just really cool and interesting and unique products. And then, you know, there was a natural evolution into commerce and, um, you've had a lot of highs and, uh, you know, the the company never had an issue with users or experience. It was, it was really around profitability and finding a way to, to make this into a viable business model. So, you know, we, we did end up having a, a situation where, you know, there was, there was a couple of insolvency moments, which ultimately led to the transition, but, you know, I've come in and, uh, there's still such a great user base and foundation in here, and we've, we've sort of been pivoting the company and, and turning things back around. And it's been a fun little ride so far, and we're really excited about the future. That's great. So when thinking about coming in and turning around companies, either at Fancy.com or just holistically from like a higher level of what you've done in your past, 
What does the first maybe 90 days look like when you are looking at a company and figuring out how you want to change it and what's going wrong? Yeah, good question. So having done this a handful of times now, I, I can tell you that I made a lot of mistakes <laughs> the, the first couple of times doing it. And um, you know, I think, I think it, it really prepared me for, for the role I took on at Fancy. But you know, I'll tell you what not to do. Okay. You know, what not to do is go in and start making changes too quickly to go in and sort of like point out every mistake that the company's ever made. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the easiest things in the world to do is be a critic. And, you know, you can go into a company that's, you know, somewhat distressed or has had some issues and you can just start just tearing things apart. Whose decision was this? Why are we doing this? This doesn't make sense. And even though you can quickly kind of come up with the right direction and the right solution for what you need to do, you can lose your people. and ultimately your people are the most important asset you have in, in many cases. So what you do need to do when you go into a company and you want to turn around, and I think it's something that I was able to do with Fancy, even though you know, there are a lot of tough decisions and tough changes, is get the buy-in from your, from your team. Mm-hmm. And you know, a lot of times you do that by just, just listening and just acknowledging all the great things that they've done in the past. And you know, uh, truthfully, most of the issues that you're going to eventually have to address, they already know they exist and they know what they are. So let them tell you and you know, you'll, you'll start to kind of pull out the solutions. And then when you have to make those really difficult changes you know, that impact people's lives and careers and you know, whatever it may be, you know, the people that you need and the people that you keep you know, are on board because they, they, they see the rationale and they understand it. And, and, and in a lot of ways, they, they're the ones that have kind of like helped you, you know, guide you. So I guess just to summarize that, the one thing that I've learned over time and that I don't think I did really early on in my career is to just take super account of the people and the human aspect of, you know, what they're going through and being a new person coming into an established company and having to make change but doing it in a way that keeps them engaged and let them believe in you and want to continue to be part of the company. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that. So when it comes to fancy.com, it seemed like before you, it was a pretty fancy environment, like maybe really nice parties mm-hmm. and things like that. Uh, did you have any struggles maybe when it came to convincing the employees, like we can't keep doing that? Or because, you know, many employees are probably like, I'm used to this and I'm getting, you know, I'm very used to going here and interacting with these people and having this kind of swag and I don't know if that's the case for fancy.com, but um, did you encounter any of that pushback when you were kind of evolving the environment to focus on profitability? Yeah, yeah, I did. You know, funny story, at least I think it's funny. Um, you know, we had this storage unit in you know, Manhattan and I went into it one day and there was just a bunch of old fancy stuff, you know, swag and you know, different products that people had sent to us for evaluation. There's this box and I open up this box and it's, it's, uh, it's got like these thick, like metal credit cards, right? They're the size of credit cards, but they're kind of like, you know, solid steel. Uh-huh. And it's like, thank you for visiting fancy. We value you. Here's a thousand dollar gift credit to what? use a fancy <laughs> coupon code. And oh my like, gosh. Hundreds of these things. I mean, like a stack, like like a box full of them. Like probably a thousand of them. Oh my god! And I'm like, I'm like, this is. I know what is this? Like we were just giving away, like handing out thousand dollar gift cards. So I, I went back to the team and talked to them. And the founders apparently would go to these like parties in New York City, and you know they would have models and celebrities and hip hop artists and athletes and etc. And they would just walk around the party, just kind of talking, and they would just give these thousand dollar 
gift cards away to people. Wow. Um, That's super fancy. <laughs> that is super fancy. Right. Right. And that's, you know, that's how you go through $120 million in, in, in capital in a period of time. Is that what you encountered when you came in? It was like $120 million of capital was kind of spent maybe in not the best ways and you had to kind of get out of the hole? Well, uh, yes and no. So the positive, and this is what, you know, really is like, I think exciting about the opportunity and one of the reasons why I decided to pretty much uproot my life and spend, you know, the last however many, you know, months in New York, you know, being a Southern California guy is yes, that a lot of money went to waste and there was a lot of money spent on parties and those types of things. But, but along the way, they built an amazing technology platform. So Fancy is all proprietary and really the underlying technology that's built upon and the mobile app that we have, you know, is, it is really rock solid. And mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm a technologist and I've been a technologist throughout my life. You know, in our mobile app, we have, I think today, like give or take like 2.7 million active installs of the Fancy app, wow. you know, iOS, Android, uh, you know, fancy.com domain name. Uh, the the site itself, you know, is generating however many hundreds of thousands of unique visitors a month just through sort of organic and SEO. Um, you know, our data set, we've gen- you know, we've had over 12 million fancy accounts created. We've done, you know, several million transactions. We're working with you know, however many merchants, you know, some 800 merchants. You know, we're a global company. We've you know, last year alone, we sold um, product to, you know, 135 countries, right? So there was this like asset pool that was built um, with that money that went out that, you know, as a startup, you would just never be able to replicate. Mm-hmm. You just you couldn't do those things um, if you were starting from scratch. But then because of some of the, the shortfalls of the company, and this is more from a business perspective, you know, the, the current valuation and, you know, as we've raised last money, I mean, we're, just closing out a, a, a small little bridge note right now at a $12 million valuation, which mm-hmm. is insane. I yeah. mean, the, the, the intrinsic value of our assets far exceeds that number, but because of the situation, that's where we're at. So I look at it as a, as a huge opportunity and, and an amazing asset pool that we sit on. But short answer to your, your question is there was a lot of money spent on like parties that like Tiesto was like DJing at that had like no business rationale really other than just getting the fancy brand out. Oh my gosh. That's, I mean, I kind of wish I was at that party, but I don't know if I'd want to be yeah. <laughs> yeah, an investor in that company per se, or the CEO at that time. So, yeah. so that sounds like a big turnaround project. Maybe to talk a little bit about fancy. There was a lot of products on there, a lot of really cool products. Was there mm-hmm. any, um, business decisions around product selection or how to curate them or personalize things or, you know, around like sourcing new products that you're implementing right now to maybe make the user experience better and to not show, you know, like thousands of products at once and more personalize it to the people when they're coming onto the website? Yeah, really kind of all those things in some way or another. It's still a work in progress, you know, and we're implementing actually, uh, we partnered with a the great company. It's actually a portfolio company of, of Raptor, which is um, the, the investment firm behind Fancy right now, called Luminoso, and um, they have a bunch of amazing, you know, uh, AI technology, machine learning technology that that's been implemented in everything from search to recommendation to uh, you know, sort of a lot of the social aspects we have in our site, and you know how uh, you know we're going to be able to, to to better make recommendations and, and curate products more effectively. 
all of that stuff has been in change. We, we did, uh, did a significant culling of the amount of products that we were on our site. And when we came on board, I think there was actually like 400,000 products that were live. And, uh, you know, it, it just didn't really make sense. Like you can't be a curated marketplace or a highly curated marketplace with that many products available. Um, we were Mm -hmm. much more open earlier on in, in regards to who we would let come sell on our site. And what that did is, you know, there were some quality issues in regards to who that merchant was and, you know, whether they were fulfilling and was the product really what they said that they, it was. So, you know, we've moved much more towards like a closed marketplace. We do have a, uh, an internal brand development curation team who, you know, thoroughly vets all of the sellers on our site, you know, and our philosophy kind of, where we're moving towards as a company is this concept of the, you know, the rise of the direct consumer brand. And we just see so many amazing purpose driven brands. And I, and I think that's the key, right? Like Amazon, you know, has almost been a victim of their own success with, you know, fulfilled by Amazon and Alibaba and all these different people who are just trying to source product and get it on Amazon and sort of like tweak with the algorithms. And you know, you're getting like commoditized products that, you know, there's not really a brand behind it. A lot of these people and these entrepreneurs who are selling these products never even take possession of the product. They're not designing the products. They're just sourcing them and trying to sell them. And um, we're trying to be the anti-Amazon in that regard. So we want to work with the, you know, sort of like the all birds of the world before they're the all birds, right? And and get those products on. Yeah. And, and and we look at it as a, as a huge win-win because, you know, we know consumers are attracted to those brands and, and, and purpose-driven brands, brands that have a story, you know, brands that potentially have a, a charitable aspect or, a, you know, a self-sustainable aspect. And those are the type of products that they want to, to, to find. They want to cut through the clutter. I mean, there's sites out there that have this stuff, but, you know, I mean, you go to Etsy or, you know, you're talking millions of products and it's like, how do you find these, you know, products? How do you get through some of the other junk that's out there? And then on the, the brand side, you know, customer acquisition is really difficult. And, you know, platforms like Instagram and, and Google are really saturated. Um, you know, that's that's one of the main channels that people have now to reach out to their consumers. You know, everyone's talking about, you know, influencers and you know, how they can leverage influence more effectively, but I don't think anybody's really cracked that code really well. So, you know, we have a huge audience and we spend a lot of time trying to build up the products, the brands, you know, that, that we feature. And, you know, we, we come up with a, a fair and equitable revenue split and, you know, we, we reach out to the audience and people come to us to find these brands that have been curated and it doesn't cost anything to be on our platform for the brands. So they're, you know, they're just, they're, they're, they're guaranteed to make money when we sell products and, uh, and we're going to continue to build on that thesis. I love that. So maybe to zoom in a bit on the customer acquisition piece, you're talking about, you know, Facebook and Google, they're getting pretty saturated and pretty expensive. What channels are you guys finding success in right now to bring customers to these new brands and products? Yeah, you know, it's a great question. So we're really lucky because we don't really, since I've been here, have not spent a ton of money on having to do sort of paid ads. I mean, we do a little bit here and there and, you know, we we handle retargeting and that type of stuff. But, you know, we have a tremendous amount of organic traffic that, that just finds us. We're a well optimizing a very high search engine authority. So a lot of people come upon fancy.com and, and, and naturally go there. Uh, we also you know, have a mobile app that has a very different shopping experience. It, it, it feels much more like a, uh, 
like a like a social shopping experience where there's a you know dynamic feed of products and you know, people can like and share and then you know recommendations are made by what they like. So, you know, we do do some um, some advertising uh, in regards to getting people to download our app. We found that we have a really high mm-hmm. lifetime value uh, for people who have downloaded our app. Um, I think right now our average user opens the app like five point four times a month or something like that. So it's it's relatively sticky. Um, you know, we are working on conversions and, and, and you know, optimizing the conversion rates of that. Um, you know, I think, you know, because of the social aspect, those, those you know, are lower than some more traditional e-commerce. But um, the area that we're really focused on and really growing is, is to continue to build upon our influencer model, our affiliate model. And partnering with micro-influencers, uh, the technology is on our site in which they they help, you know, sort of guest curate. And uh, this is going to be a big part of our, our upcoming release, you know, guest curate, um, you know, different selections of products. And, you know, whether it's for, you know, home decor or whether it's fashion-based, you know, whatever it is, with the idea of, you know, we're creating a great experience for our user base. Um, but then, you know, we we want to help sort of build their own personal brand, you know, with the idea that there's a quid pro quo. We pay them you know, a percentage of sales and, you know, we can attribute, you know, when they've driven traffic to the site or anything that's been sold, which, you know, provides an incentive for them to, to share and, and, and drive people to, you know, the fancy platform. And then, you know, vice versa, obviously we're, um, we're providing them with an avenue to create more exposure for themselves, right? Because it's, it's not being hidden. We want people to know who this you know, particular curator or influencer or, or, you know, thought leader in the space is. Cool. I love that. So, it's a good segue into influencers because we've had a lot of people in our audience ask about that and wonder how to even, you know, like, is it successful working with influencers? How do you go about engaging with them? So what does maybe the back end look like for Fancy when it comes to building up this influencer network? And like, what kind of success are you seeing? And how would you maybe advise a smaller brand to start this if you think they should? You know, the influencer models can be tough. And, you know, it's definitely something we talk a lot about. Uh, we've, we've been toying around through we've done a lot of user research in, in, in the space. What I would say is like the traditional influencer model of, hey, let me find a micro-influencer. Let me pay him, you know, X amount of money depending on their size. And let me have them do a post talking about our product or driving people to uh, our site. The experience that we've had with, you know, ourselves and then with brands that we've worked with is you're really not going to get an ROI there it doesn't necessarily pencil. At least that's what we've seen. Um, I'm sure there's some people out there that, that have been able to figure that out. So we, we're looking at it a little bit differently, or at least um, you know, our approach to it is we want to create more of a platform um, that influencers can leverage um, and become a little bit more native in what they're doing uh, that helps them you know, expand their own reach, um, you know, expand the value to their user base, and then you know, ultimately monetize that user base because that's really what the influencers, especially micro-influencers, are looking to do. Uh, but, it, but it has to be done somewhat organically, at least from, my, um, from what I've seen. And you know, if it's just a matter of paying an influencer because you want them to like use your product or post your product or tag you and something like that, you know, I don't know. I have not personally seen that ROI. I think it takes a lot of time and patience. I've seen some companies, uh, you know, some of the brands that we've talked to that have tried it, um, you know, that they've kind of given up after a couple months of doing it because they just haven't seen the return that they've wanted. Um, so I think that that's kind of one component of it. I, I think it can be kind of difficult to go that route. From my experience, some of the influencers can be a little bit difficult to work with, um, but not, not all yeah. of them. So you to kind of pick and choose. Uh, you know, we do a lot of reach out through our own Instagram account. We have about 350,000 
uh, followers. So, you know, that helps and it gives us some legitimacy and, you know, we're, we're usually able to engage and, you know, and we got some great people who follow us on Instagram. Right. And, you know, that's, that's another big advantage as well. So that's, you know, typically we open up discussions and then, you know, we try as much as possible to look at it from like a pure win-win perspective. And, and we want to be a technology company. So we want to be able to provide them with more of a platform that sort of ties into what they're already doing and allows them to effectively monetize their audience, but try to do it as authentically as possible. Yep. So how are you building a platform? I'm trying to imagine what that would look like from the influencer's perspective. Like, is it just a platform based around fancy products or is it kind of separate where it's a platform for their, them to influence, but other products can be there as well? Or how do I think about that? The way the platform currently works right now is we can create a profile on Fancy for a particular influencer, which they can curate their own, you know, lists, uh, different groupings of, of different products, et cetera, that they like. And so what we bring to the table is, you know, A, we bring in the fulfillment infrastructure. We have the relationships with all the different brands. They've already been vetted. Uh, we handle all fulfillment, we handle all shipping, we handle all payment processing, we handle all fraud detection, returns, um, customer support, et cetera, et cetera. And then what we can do with them is we can give them, you know, the ability to go on a fancy, create a profile. It can be done, honestly, and we have done it in more of a white labeled capacity in the past where it looks almost like their own personal website, like their own storefront in which they're able to pick our sort of unique and interesting products and kind of populate it. But in a lot of cases, it's done more of in like a, like a traditional profile on our site. And then we have, you know, attribution um, on that. So, you know, it works in more of an affiliate model from, you know, any, any traffic or any users that they, they drive to our site, we can, um, you know, track it and, and, you know, ultimately we can pay them, um, you know, per the, the performance of what they've done. What makes us interesting versus like, let's say an Amazon who does some affiliate type of stuff is, you know, we do have a little bit more of an authentic kind of lifestyle brand who fancy is and a little bit more legitimacy with kind of being cool and, and sort of like having new and interesting, unique stuff versus kind of Amazon, which is, great for commoditized products, but, you know, isn't necessarily where you want to like buy your fashion from. Right. And then that lifestyle brand, plus the uniqueness of our products, it's something that, you know, a lot of times the, their users and depending on, you know, the micro influencer and influencer working with, uh, um, you know, the type of imagery we use, et cetera, is, is, is typically more engaging and more in line with what they're trying to accomplish with their own profile anyways. Got it. Yeah. That's really interesting thinking. It's probably easier than for a brand to just work with you guys to then get access to that influencer network and hopefully be chosen to be on one of those lists or whatnot. Yeah. Uh, You know, that's, it's funny you say that. That's something that we have as a company uh, have done in the past and have done pretty successfully. When I came in, I, I really wanted to simplify our business model and I, I wanted to kind of bring out all these sort of like different one-off type of deals, but we've had a lot of brands, like big brands, global brands that have come to us and have paid us, you know, six figures to um, connect them with users on our site or influencers on our site uh, in kind of joint marketing efforts. Um, you mentioned T-Pain and you saw that T-Pain. Like, yep. I saw he was called the VP of yeah. I think, product testing, but VP had quotes yeah. around it. <laughs> so like he did a big thing with us, uh, purple mattresses. Um, you know, you probably heard of purple. Purple came to us however yep. many, you know, a couple of years ago and we did an entire 
we sort of middled an entire campaign with T-Pain and T-Pain did a bunch of different videos and interesting kind of things, created a bunch of content for Purple Mattresses that, you know, of course was featured on Fancy, but then Purple was taking this content and they were repurposing it for their own purposes. So mm-hmm. that opportunity is there. Like I said, you know, it's a little bit of when you come into a, a company and you're, you're running a turnaround is you got to like really focus. So, you know, I'm really, I'm trying to focus on just creating a great user experience with our merchants and the different brands that we're partnering with, and then do the best that we can in order to help that experience for our consumers be a better experience by bringing in influencers and people who can, you know, really create interesting collections of products that we think ultimately, you know, people like yourself, the consumers of the world will find, you know, value in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's awesome. So when Talking about building a company now, and, you know, we've been talking quite a bit about around like the turnaround story and how to rebuild it. The one thing I have not touched on, but I think would be great too, is developing a board of directors. So, you know, a lot of brands right now, if they're thinking about raising money, and of course, like the board of directors question always comes up of like, who do you want on your board? And I was hoping you could kind of touch on your guys' board of directors and what's helpful, what's not, like, how should someone think about having a board and putting that together? You want a board of directors, you know, that's, that's going to be supportive of you. You want a board of directors that's going to be helpful, right? That has connections, that's going to be involved. Uh, I've had boards where it's like all they want is reporting, 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 which yeah. you're going to provide anyways. I mean, you, of course, are providing your reporting to your board. A really effective board isn't necessarily a babysitter of, you know, the money or, or whatever that's been invested and just kind of like that. I mean, that's helpful. I guess it helps keep you accountable. But, you know, what you really want from a board is is a group of people that are willing to get involved and, you know, make introductions or are going to actually take an active interest and listen to what you're doing and provide you with valuable advice and help you answer difficult questions. And you know, a lot of times you don't get that with your board, especially if, you know, you're, you get kind of a fund that comes in, you know, maybe, you know, you get someone on, on the board, you know, it's a board seat, they take over and you're a part of a, you know, a hundred portfolio companies and they're not even really paying attention. They don't really know what you're doing. They don't know your industry, yep. uh, et cetera. I've been really lucky here at Fancy. Uh, we have a small board. It's only four of us. Uh, well, five of us, including myself. Um, the chairman of our board is Jim Pilata. Jim Pilata is, you know, one of the owners of Boston Celtics. Uh, he just actually recently sold AS Roma, which is the Rome, you know, Premier League soccer team. He's a billionaire, extremely accomplished investor based out of Boston, super well connected, uh, and is just sharp as a tack. And he's, he's, involved just enough, like the perfect amount, like wants to make introductions, wants to make connections, has just the, you know, an amazing Rolodex and he is willing to open his Rolodex at any time to, to make a connection for the company. And then, you know, we, we have, you know, Francois Pinot, who's, uh, you know, basically chairman of Curing. He's married to Selma Hayek. Uh, you might know him. He's the guy who donated, I think $300 million to the Notre Dame when it burned down. Mm-hmm. And, um, Paris. And so they own, you know, uh, Gucci and, and Balenciaga. They're like one of the largest luxury houses in the world. So, you know, once again, you know, extremely well connected, um, you know, credibility across the board, you know, when you're talking to brands, we're trying to bring on direct to consumer brands and, you know, one of the, the largest shareholders of this company and, and board members, you know, you know, owns Gucci, you know, like that, that goes a long way. And, um, I'm really lucky, very supportive. There are people who have, you know, brought more to the table than just money, uh, really an active interest in the company and, and making those things. Uh, 
as far as building your own board, you know, look, a lot of times your board members are going to be your biggest investors and you go out and raise capital. And unless you got an amazing idea um, or you're just really doing something special, like, you know, as much as you want to say you can go out there and pick your investors, mm-hmm. let's be honest, if someone's going to write a check and you're trying to raise capital, in many cases, you're going to take that capital. And along with that capital comes board seats. So, you know, you don't always have the control that you would like in that situation. But, you know, if you do have the ability to pick your board and, um, you know, I think you can pick your advisors uh, a little bit more easily. But, you know, you want people who are going to bring more than capital to the table. You want people who are going to get actively involved and are not afraid to open up the Rolodex and make connections. Yep. Yeah, I completely agree. It's something you see, at least here in Silicon Valley, is sometimes people are excited maybe about like really big brand name investment firms or, you know, large amounts of money. And, I've always asked the question of like, well, how can they actually help you? Like, can they spend time with you? Can they actually give you introductions? Are they willing to do that? I think not for, you know, certain, at least I've heard certain investment firms, once you get to a certain level, it's like, they're not going to spend time with you unless they invest, you know, a very large amount of money and they have a lot of skin in the game. And outside of that, it might actually be better to work with someone who's in your industry, knows it, can introduce you to people. So yeah, I completely agree with the same thing with building a board or thinking about that. You might not always have the options to do so, but if you do, choose someone who can actually help you and spend time with you. That's exactly right. So earlier we were talking about you guys have an app and you know your desktop version. How did you go about thinking about building out an app? You said it had a different user experience and buying experience and a lot more of a social aspect there. Like how do you think a brand should think about like, should I have an app? Because I think at one point, every brand probably considers building their own, you know, app along with their uh, desktop version. Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, you know, it's funny, uh, you know, whatever, six, seven, eight years ago when the sort of the app reputation, uh, you know, it, it, it got super hot and everybody wanted to build an app, it, you know, things were different, right? And sort of like the technology, especially just around like mobile responsive websites was different. And to get a really good mobile experience, in a lot of cases, it, it helped have like a native mobile app and you were able to tap into so many functions and features that you, you know, weren't necessarily available with mobile web. You know, what we see today and where we sit and the kind of the conversations we have in our product meeting is, you know, we have a great, you know, mobile responsive platform. You know, the mobile experience on fancy.com is, is really good in our opinion, or it's, it's, it's as good, you know, as you would need it to be as good as all the other products that are out there. So for us to replicate our mobile web experience on app, just to have a couple of different features that you get with native didn't necessarily make sense for us. So we did look at it differently. And, you know, with our mobile app and the way mobile is structured right now is it's truly much more of a discovery based experience. It's a, it's the kind of experience that when you, you know, people open up and you know, this is what our data shows and the testing that we've done, you know, people open up our app because they're just interested to scroll through and look at really interesting and cool and unique products. And we focus very heavily on, you know, using lifestyle imagery through that. And, and there are social aspects and, you know, people can like and they can build their lists and they can share and they can follow other people and they can get, um, you know, updates of what people who they followed and influencers that they're following have liked other products or have added other products to their own lists and those types of things. And that would be really difficult to replicate in like a true mobile web experience. So 
when we look at it and we look at our product strategy, you know, we ultimately look at web, so fancy.com and then our mobile experience of that is, is a little bit more of a traditional commerce-based experience. You know, you go to it, you have categories, you search, you find things you like, um, you know, hopefully you transact. Uh, where we look at mobile is much more of a, a sort of a stickier, joyous engagement where you just want people to kind of open it up similar to how we open up Instagram 25 times a day, right? Not opening up Instagram necessarily because you want to buy anything or, you know, just kind of open it up because there's like cool images and there's things that you're going to discover and it's going to bring kind of a little like little moment of joy in our lives as we're sitting there in the bank. And that's a lot of how the experience with the, the fancy app has been created. And, um, you know, our thought is that people will discover things and they'll find things and they'll like things and, and, and personalization will happen through our mobile app. And in many cases, they'll end up going to web to transact. Mm-hmm. Oh, can they currently transact on the app or is it more of a discovery platform right now that transfers over? Oh, no, they, they, can, they can transact on the app. Um, okay. and, and, and we, you know, a large part of our business still occurs mobile, uh, but, but definitely the experience that we want to have is, I guess that would be my big takeaway to any, any company out there that was considering building a native mobile app. If they're, you know, in, in the commerce world is well, why, like what, yep. what difference are you going to offer on mobile versus you're going to offer on web? Because the truth of the matter is people don't need to download another app. And if they can get everything that they need by just going to your domain name through their Google browser or whatever it is in their iPhone, save the trouble. Yep. Yeah, I love that. So how are you thinking about balancing the social aspect on the app? You were mentioning conversions weren't as high as like traditional e-commerce sites, which makes sense if people are kind of going on there just to see new things and maybe not always having an intent to buy. But how are you going about balancing that to keep people moving along and get them to check out, but also have fun and engage with other users? You know, the big thing with us right now and, and, you know, big focus is around number one, personalization. We're doing everything we can to continue to make the experience more personal. I think that that's something that, uh, you know, if there's, there's been kind of a, an area where I don't think we've always done a great job on that is that we've very much had a point of view that Fancy has taken in regards to kind of what we think is cool and what people who you know, we, we want to think it's cool and that kind of gets pushed out um, where I want to have a little bit more of a, you know, based on your interactions, based on what you've, you know, you've liked, what you've shown that, that I can kind of avoid, you know, showing you stuff that isn't relevant to you. Um, so, you know, that's, that's a big component of that from that perspective. We're okay with conversions being lower with the app because we also have, uh, really high engagement and repeat users. So these are people who are just opening up the app, you know, you know, quite frequently. I mean, some people open up the app on a daily basis, right? And, uh, you know, those people aren't going to buy something on a daily basis, you know, and they're not necessarily going to fancy because they want to buy something, but they ultimately do buy. So, you know, I, I think for us, the, the more the experience gets better, the more sticky it is, the more people want to open up the fancy app and kind of just, you know, enter into that, you know, sort of social commerce world, uh, the, the, the more people who are eventually going to transact, even though it isn't a straight kind of equation like on a, on a return on ad spend like you do with more of a traditional website. We have a particular product. Someone goes to that site because they're looking for that product. And then, you know, did they convert or they didn't? They didn't convert. Now we're going to do retargeting, right? It's, we're, we're, we're looking at it as a little bit more of an engaged experience. So it's not a huge concern for us from that mm-hmm. perspective. I'm guessing you would have to have a different set of metrics when it comes to like, how's the app performing versus how is, you know, desktop performing? How, what kind of metrics are like your go-to things to 
check in on the health of the app versus desktop? Yeah, no, that's, that's a good question. Um, so we track, uh, obviously, just, you know, simple things like, like total sessions, users, new users, app downloads, uninstalls. Uh, you know, my dashboard has all that information. Uh, time on app, uh, number of, uh, you know, products that they've clicked into. Um, you know, we do look at conversion rates, you know, across the board. You know, how many users came in, how many times did they convert, average order value, you know, the standard stuff like that. Uh, but, you know, when we think about the app and the experience itself, you know, we're, we're really looking at, um, you know, things like how many users did we have, but how many sessions did we have? So what's the average session per user? Because, you know, in our app experience, it, it is about having people come back and using the app multiple times. Uh, and then when they do open up the app, you know, you know how much time are they spending on, on a typical basis interacting with the app? And, you know, what are they doing? Um, you know, so those are a lot of things that we look at. And then, you know, from a bigger picture, obviously, we're, uh, we're not spending a ton of money trying to attract new um, app downloads, like, like outward spending, but we still have a tremendous amount of new app downloads that happen on a pretty regular basis. So we look very closely at how many new app downloads and then what our uninstall rate is. Cool. Yeah, that's that's really good. Good to know. When it comes to personalization, are there any tools right now that you guys are really excited about? I know you mentioned one that was maybe uh, within a portfolio company that you guys work with, but are there any Mm -hmm. tools that other brands should be looking into right now when it comes to uh, personalization? Right now, we're spending some time on our ESP, our email service provider, and, and we're looking at a couple of different um, providers in that space. That's you know something where uh, there's some really cool providers out there that do some amazing stuff in regards to personalization um, around all messaging, not just email, but also you know push because mm-hmm. obviously they're mobile, mobile apps, uh, and and that's something that we're we're probably going to adopt here and. If not next quarter, the quarter after that, and and, and try to revamp the, the way we do our outbound. Um, we have about a million people on our email list right now. So, you know, we, we send out a ton of emails. Um, I told you about, uh, it's like 2.7 million active installs of the app. We do push notifications. Um, yep. And then that number is from our push notifications. So when you actually do a push notification, it'll tell you how many were delivered. So that it's about, you know, two seven. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, we do a lot of, outbound messaging. And I think there's a huge opportunity for us to do more personalization with that messaging. That's great. Yeah, it'd be really cool to bring you back in a couple months after you've done the email stuff and talk about, you know, what you've seen with your app and your push notifications and kind of hear an update on all that. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So we got about 10 minutes left. I want to make sure I feel like you're going to have some great answers for the lightning round. So I want to make sure that we have enough time for it. So The lightning round brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud. This is where I'm going to ask you a question and you have one minute or less to answer each question. Are you ready to go, Greg? All right, let's do this. All right. I'm going to start with the hardest one first, because like I said, I think you'll have a good answer. What one thing will have the biggest impact on e-commerce in the next year? Oh, man. COVID has been terrible, but unbelievable for e-commerce. And I think that the one thing that it's done Mm -hmm. is it just increase the adoption rate and and made it gone through the roof right like people like my parents who never bought anything from amazon never bought anything from postmates or anything like that like are now just doing it and um even as stores and retail locations of brick and mortar uh continue to open back up um you know i think sort of the the cat's out of the box um i think the adoption rates are going to continue to rise i think they're just going to be 
many more direct consumer brands that are going to continue to come about. Uh, there's going to be new technology that uh, innovative companies out of Silicon Valley are going to come up with that are going to just make the experiences better, whether you're, you know, talking about augmented reality or different types of things. So I just think that the overall continued adoption of e-commerce is just going to make the pie of the, you know, the $7.2 trillion, you know, global retail market, um, you know, the, the, the e-commerce side of that is just going to continue to expand and grow. I don't, I don't think there's going to be any stop in sight. Yeah. Yeah. I completely agree. I love that answer. What's up next on your reading list? Good question. I tend to go back and forth between like more autobiographical and then just like fiction. I'm a big Stephen King guy. I, I typically read all his books. I just, whatever, I, kind of since the beginning of time. But yep. right now I'm reading Eric Larson's um, newest book on uh, Churchill, Winston Churchill. And it's really focused on uh, like 1940, 1941 in England, where the Germans were just bombarding England with bombers and the U.S. hadn't entered the war yet. And, uh, you know, Germany was just a powerhouse. And I mean, it just looked like they were just trying to bomb them into submission and Churchill would not submit. And uh, we all know how that ended up turning out, but just so amazing to like learn about that guy. And, you know, especially as kind of a CEO of a company where you're kind of faced with sometimes it feels like overwhelming odds and you have to be honest with your team and they have to realize the gravity of the situation, uh, but at the same time, motivate them and give them the confidence that you can overcome. It's exactly what he did. And it's been a really good read. Oh, that's good. I will have to check that one out. If you were to have a podcast, what would the podcast be about and who would your first guest be? <laughs> so I'm a, I'm an ex-athlete. I, th- I talked to you a little bit about that. Uh, um, so I, I, I was actually a football player in college and you know, I'm, I'm kind of a jock. I still like to do all those types of things. And I learned so much of what I do in a professional world from my athletic career, just dealing with coaches and like the meritocracy involved and like just working hard and showing up on time and competing every day and all those types of things. So I think what I would like to do is uh, I'd love to have a business focused podcast that had athletes turn business people who are able to talk about their experiences, especially guys in the NFL experiences working with coaches like Bill Belichick, et cetera, and how those principles have translated into the, the professional world. And, um, you know, I mean, I think someone like a, a Tom Brady would be like a great first guest. I, I, you know, he's, he started up his own, um, I think say like TV 12 and he's got kind of like a whole supplement line. And uh, I'd love to talk about how, how he's translated sort of what he's done professionally as a the greatest quarterback ever and, and how he's having success now in, in a business capacity. That sounds like a really good podcast. I will find you a sponsor. Let's do it, we will get right? that off the ground because yeah, I like that. That's good. <laughs> All right. How do you stay on top of e-commerce or industry trends? What kind of sources are you looking at or tools are you using or, you know, resources do you rely on to stay on top of things? A lot of reading. Yeah, obviously that's the the answer anybody would have, right? But I have a a number of uh, sort of hashtags or subject lines that I'm I'm following in uh, my Flipboard account. and, you know, I just, every morning I kind of open it up and flipping through and seeing what other people are doing. I also like to read uh, about some of the bigger players in the space that are public. So, you know, if you've been following companies mm-hmm. like Overstock.com, Wayfair, Etsy, um, have had tremendous growth in, you know, in the last several months. I mean, I think Overstock.com stock went from like 
$3 a share in like March to, you know, almost $100 a share, you know, most recently. So, you know, jumping into their, their quarterly reports and their 10Ks and, you know, you know, as public companies, they have to disclose everything. I love to read kind of what they're seeing, what they're doing, where they want to go with things. So that's always helpful, glean a lot of uh, ideas and insights from, you know, some of the bigger competitors in the space. That's really good. We haven't had anyone talk about going through their quarterly reports yet. So I love that. That's something I enjoy doing as well, but I no, thought I was the only one. All right. Well, Greg, this has been such a good interview. Like I said, we need to bring you back for round two to hear how some of these experiments are going, but where can people find out more about you and Fancy? Yeah. Uh, well, obviously, fancy.com is the, the site. You can go into the uh, your app store, Android store. would love for you to download it. Um, you can reach out to me directly. I, I literally just love people. Just email me. I get them all the time. So greg at fancy.com. Super easy. 1G. Uh, and then, you know, we are, like I said, we're, we're raising a little bit of a, a round of equity right now. Um, you know, we, we're actually doing it um, partially through a uh, equity crowdfunding site called WeFunder. So, um, anybody that's interested in yep. learning more, um, wefunder.com forward slash fancy. Uh, you can see a, a video and see T-Pain and, and uh, learn a little bit more about the opportunity. I, I think it's a pretty attractive investment um, you know, considering where we're at and what our opportunity is, and, and especially the valuation of our company today. Yep, I completely agree. We will link up that video because it was pretty great. All right, Greg. Well, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Stephanie. Great being there. Up Next in Commerce is brought to you by Salesforce Commerce Cloud and created by the team at mission.org. Subscribe now at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for checking out another epic hour of business insights and inspiration on the Up Next in Commerce podcast. If you like what you've heard and you're interested in partnering with us to bring your brand to a growing audience of e-commerce experts, reach out to me at stephanie at mission.org to get the conversation started.